Hello and welcome to the ninth part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. The epidemiologists told us that if COVID-19 was allowed to spread unchecked, then billions would be infected and millions would die. The World Health Organization and public health experts told us that therefore we had to have a disease containment strategy that would stop the virus from spreading. On this basis, the epidemiologists and public health fraternity told us to flatten the curve. The idea, they said, was to bring the number of infections to within manageable levels. But COVID-19 proved to be unmanageable whether you had one case or a billion. For reasons that we do not as yet understand, COVID can be mild and clear up in a few days or have you choking to death in nine days flat. No amount of flattening the curve can solve this problem. And it is a problem of some significance if you or a loved one are on the curve, however flat it may be. And this is a problem not of containment, but of treatment. Why is it that when antivirals were known to be effective in reducing the severity of viral infections, <clears throat> that the WHO and public health field in general were so focused on non-pharmaceutical interventions? Because we do have medicines for viral disease. This is how AIDS was brought under control. With antiviral drugs, you can be HIV positive for years, for decades even, without falling ill. Antiviral medicines like hydroxychloroquine do not cure viral disease um, in the sense of eliminating them from the body, but they are well known to reduce the severity of infection, which can also be life-saving. In epidemiological work on pandemic influenza, the assumption is that antivirals can be given both as a preventive and as treatment. For instance, writing in the journal Nature in the year 2006, Neil Ferguson and colleagues say in an article called Strategies for Mitigating an Influenza Pandemic that, quote, prompt treatment with antivirals reduces clinical severity and infectiousness, unquote. Even the WHO has acknowledged the, the efficacy of antiviral drugs and medicines like hydroxychloroquine in retarding the progress of viral infections. So we need to turn away from those hypnotizing exponential graphs of the epidemiologists and look into why disease containment rather than treatment has become the guiding principle of public health interventions for epidemics, despite the availability of medicines. <clears throat> the formal name for disease containment is non-pharmaceutical measures. Now this gives us some hint of what might be going on, because the negation implied in this expression is of pharmaceutical measures, that is, medicines. So the question that arises is this, did the idea of disease containment arise as an alternative to 
or perhaps even in opposition to pharmaceutical measures. Writing in 2006 about non-pharmaceutical interventions for pandemic influenza, the WHO writing group rejects the feasibility of pharmaceutical interventions saying that the availability of antiviral drugs is quote insufficient and that while pandemic preparedness quote ideally would include pharmaceutical countermeasures such as vaccines and antiviral drugs but for the foreseeable future such measures will not be available for the global population of at the, at the time they said more than six billion <clears throat> But this was clearly a huge underestimation of the capacity of countries to deploy antivirals. We saw earlier in my previous lectures that it was the poorer countries in Asia and Africa that were the first to use antivirals, viral inhibitors and other therapies like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, plasma therapy and favipiravir for COVID-19 treatment. It was Bangladesh that led the way with the ivermectin and doxycycline treatment protocol. If anything, it was the rich countries with their, in the case of continental and Nordic Europe, total lack of innovation in pharmaceuticals and in the case of the US, cumbersome clinical trials that lagged behind in finding pharmaceutical interventions for COVID-19. While it may be impossible to produce drugs for all the 7 or 8 billion people in the world in a short time, this is not the way any disease progresses. You will not have all these people falling ill at once. And given the vast numbers of mild cases for COVID-19, not even all those who do fall ill will need pharmaceutical intervention. And if you think about it, this was surely something that the WHO knew very well already. Could the truth lie in the fact that no one wanted to encourage the idea of drugs when this might have meant footing the bill or giving up patents for drugs for infectious diseases, which until COVID-19 were really only a problem for low-income countries in Africa? As we discussed in yesterday's lecture, High-income countries have a tiny disease burden from infectious disease compared with non-infectious disease and middle-income countries show epidemiological transition with a reducing burden of infectious disease and an increasing one under the head of non-infectious disease. <clears throat> For many years, there has been something very dysfunctional in the entire approach of high-income countries, of rich countries uh, in the West to drugs. A particularly sordid episode occurred during the Ebola outbreak of 2014-16 in West Africa. Some European and American health workers who had caught Ebola there were flown back home for treatment. Most of them were cured after being given a cutting-edge medication called Z-Map. There was outrage in West Africa where people had been told for decades that Ebola had no cure, no medicines. The extent of the betrayal of the West African people by this is underscored by the role played by Europeans in the two previous Ebola outbreaks before the 2014 one. In the 1976 outbreak, 
it was Belgian nuns acting as nurses who spread the disease by using contaminated needles on pregnant women who had been encouraged to come in for iron shots. And uh, in the outbreak after that, in 1995, uh, <clears throat> a badly botched operation uh, occurred at a missionary-run uh, hospital that set off a chain of transmission involving Italian nuns who were evacuated for special treatment to a bigger hospital in another area, unlike the locals who did not have these special privileges. Initially, it was claimed in America that only seven doses of ZMAP were available. Uh, and they said that uh, they've all been used up and so nothing remains to be sent to West Africa. But there was widespread speculation that ZMAP was still being used and uh, sent to Spain and other places for repatriated European health workers. The governments of Nigeria and Liberia immediately requested the medicine to be sent to them, even while Western commentators were delivering sermons on the indispensability of clinical trials. The WHO stepped in to say that given the emergency situation, the experimental use of the drug should be allowed in West Africa. This led to an outcry from academics sitting in the UK and Australia against the use of medicines for Ebola, against the use. Writing in journals like the Lancet and the BMJ Journal of Medical Ethics, these experts made the argument, and I've linked their papers on my blog, they made the argument that looking merely at medicines to cure a few patients was what they called individualistic, uh, or that this somehow betrayed what they saw as being the wider community good of disease containment measures. Now, this is where we get some hints of where the thrust for disease containment is coming from among public health experts. They see disease containment as a form of socialist and communally minded medicine and a moral victory over free market principles. Now, there are certainly obvious dangers with allowing an unregulated free market circus in the medical sector. But prioritizing medieval disease containment measures over medication for a novel disease is taking things a bit too far. Even with the best containment, those who fall ill want to be cured. Containment is not a cure, but medicines are. And it's outrageous for public health experts to be opposing pharmaceutical interventions in poor countries as they write their papers from the richest countries of the world with every medical facility at hand. Luckily, common sense prevailed over these academic fulminations and ZMAP was sent to Liberia and Nigeria. So much for the claim that only seven doses were available. Old hands at the Ebola game in West Africa, Peter Piot and David Heyman stepped in to say that given the, severi the severity of Ebola, they themselves would have been happy to try experimental drugs for it had they contracted the disease. And they also said pointedly that if Ebola had broken out in the West, then it was, quote, highly likely that the authorities would have speeded up the, tr the testing of experimental drugs for it. And this turned out to be prescient 
going by the promptness with which Remdesivir was put to trial in the US after it was hit by COVID-19. The West owes a debt to Ebola and West Africa. It was only after West Africans insisted on access to experimental drugs that attention was finally given to working on Ebola drugs and it is in the course of this work that Remdesivir was developed. There have been similar controversies over pharmaceutical interventions in, in COVID times. We're all familiar with the controversy over hydroxychloroquine, which also seems uh, to be at least as political as it is scientific. As discussed in my earlier lectures, hydroxychloroquine is an anti-malaria drug widely used in many developing countries. It was deployed off-label, meaning without clinical trials, in places like India as a prophylactic and treatment for COVID-19. Uh, as it was considered uh, by experienced clinicians here to have some therapeutic uh, value with viral infections. <clears throat> this was considered a uh, routine in developing countries, but the endorsement of the drug by polarizing leaders like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro led to a lot of controversy around it. Media outlets like CNN and the BBC led a sustained campaign against hydroxychloroquine, which reached its zenith when Donald Trump announced sometime in late May that he had actually taken the drug as a preventive. Days later, on May the 22nd, The Lancet published a paper claiming that data showed hydroxychloroquine to be ineffective and even harmful. Three days later, on May the 25th, the WHO suspended its solidarity trial on hydroxychloroquine, citing this paper. But doctors all over the world, <clears throat> including Dr. Mande, uh, India's head of uh, the Center for Scientific and Industrial Research, were extremely critical of this move. Uh, 140 scientists issued a letter refuting the claims of the Lancet article, and Dr. Mande described it as a knee-jerk response by the WHO. Two weeks later, the Lancet paper was discredited. The data used by it was claimed to have basic weaknesses and there was also some doubt as to the credentials of those who had written the paper. The Lancet was forced to retract the paper and similar work was retracted by the New England Journal of Medicine and the WHO resumed trial of hydroxychloroquine. There are two things here. One is the unreliability of stalwarts in the medical field such as the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. And this shows us once again that COVID-19 challenges all the established authorities in the medical field and that the need of the hour is new thinking, questioning and not blind conformity with what the supposed experts are saying. But the second thing, and this should concern uh, the lay public even more, <clears throat> is how politicized science and, and medicine have become in the tensions that have arisen around COVID-19. This is the nub of the issue for us as the lay public. We need to facilitate a cooling down of the atmosphere. If we are poised and patient ourselves, then perhaps it will open the way to what has still not happened a fair and open and uh, serious scientific investigation, one with some integrity of all things related to COVID-19. 
Otherwise, we will just keep sinking deeper and deeper into the vortex of confusion that has been created by the experts who are, quite frankly, running around like chickens with their heads cut off. <clears throat> the public also needs to better understand the role played by mistakes and sure chance in scientific discoveries. Penicillin was discovered when some bacteria cultures were accidentally left exposed near an open window by Alexander Fleming when he went abroad for his annual vacation. Mold formed on the open bacteria cultures and when Fleming returned, he noticed that the mold seemed to have inhibited the growth of the bacteria and thereby hangs the tail of the discovery of penicillin. In today's culture of hyper-concern about safety standards, Fleming would probably never have gotten the chance to check out his mouldy petri dishes. He would have been hauled off from his vacation to a committee of investigation for being careless about his laboratory, never to be seen again. <clears throat> Another mistake that is being made in the response to COVID-19 is the exclusive focus on severe cases for treatment. The drugs that we have are better suited for early onset of the infection. As we just discussed, what hydroxychloroquine and antivirals do <clears throat> is to inhibit <clears throat> excuse me, is to inhibit viral replication in the body. It is therefore important to intervene early with patients. There are studies to show that each day's delay after the onset of symptoms reduces the effectiveness of antiviral drugs. As, the dr as these drugs are only able to inhibit virus replication, they are of less value when the virus has already exploded in the body. <clears throat> this is recognized even by the WHO. Uh, Mike Ryan, the WHO's Executive Director of Health Emergencies, when questioned about hydroxychloroquine said, and I quote, no one here is actually talking about a cure. Some drugs may actually prevent the virus replicating early in the disease and therefore shorten the length of the illness and reduce the progression to severe disease. Once the disease is very well established and in the later stage of the disease, a lot of the damage that's being caused by the virus is not necessarily being caused by the virus itself, but all of the secondary effects, the inflammation, the organ failure and other things that happen. So a lot of uh, antiviral therapies are focused on getting a person with the disease <clears throat> treated at an earlier stage of the disease and if you look at a lot of the anti-flu medications like Tamiflu and others, the main benefit that has been found for those again has been shortening of the course of illness." Unquote. This is what Mike Ryan of the WHO has to say about Tamiflu, antivirals and medicines like hydroxychloroquine. <clears throat> so. But what is happening is that uh, treatment and even many clinical trials for COVID-19 are overly focused on severe cases. In India, the medical advisory for hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is confined to the severely ill. Uh, but we should be using these and other drugs early on patients to reduce severity and help avoiding the stage where the secondary effects of the disease overtake the damage caused by the virus. We should not be waiting till people need to be hospitalized, <clears throat> by which point we can offer them little more than supportive treatment. While testing may be useful for contact tracing, 
If we're not treating patients as soon as they test positive, then tests are of scant comfort to the patients themselves. Despite all the information available on antivirals and hydroxychloroquine, the attitude of many doctors in Delhi is to say that they do not know anything about that. And the only advice is to report to a COVID-designated hospital in case the patient tests positive. But there are waiting lines for testing and several days can be lost, especially if you fall ill over the weekend, just waiting for the test results to come in. And this is not an optimal way of combating a galloping disease like COVID-19 that can get critical in merely nine days. This is also very different to how doctors typically function in India where they pride themselves in their ability to diagnose clinically without asking for a battery of expensive tests. Doctors who keep sending patients for tests are considered to be incompetent at clinical diagnosis and in cahoots with testing laboratories making money off people. We need to reinstate some of this approach in India for COVID-19. The Indian Council of Medical Research should look into issuing a treatment protocol for early stages of COVID-19 instead of leaving early onset COVID-19 patients with nothing but paracetamol and luck until they turn severe. <clears throat> the focus on containment has also led to the attention being trained away, um, ironically, from the virus itself. It is a mystery that cries out for investigation how each time there has been an Ebola outbreak in West Africa, it has died out even though there has been till recently no medicine or vaccination for it. The same phenomena of viral diseases dying out inexplicably has been observed in the case of other infections, viral infections such as SARS. There has been speculation that the Ebola virus weakens dramatically and peters out after four rounds of transmission, four rounds of transmission. Similar claims that the COVID-19 virus has lost its potency or that it may peter out on its own have surfaced from experts in Italy and the United Kingdom. The Who's Mike Ryan lost no time to intervene to rebuff any such speculation <clears throat> saying uh, very sarcastically in a press briefing that it could not be uh, that the virus, quote, all of a sudden of its own volition, says he, has decided to become less pathogenic. But the gentleman doth protest too much. This is hardly a fair representation of what the Italian doctors were saying, which was that the viral load observed in patients was smaller than earlier on in the epidemic and that clinically... COVID-19 appears uh, to no longer be the same disease. The British doctor who suggested the possibility of the virus petering out uh, over time is himself a former WHO director. Viral burnout is at least as scientific a possibility as that of finding a vaccine for COVID-19, which Mike Ryan has been insisting is the only solution, the one great hope for this disease. But there has not been much success so far with finding a vaccine for coronaviruses. Vaccination has been elusive even for other viruses. No, none was found for AIDS despite the vast sums of money being pumped into AIDS research. <clears throat> there are indications that we might be wrong on some very basic things about COVID-19. 
one puzzling set of facts uh, leads us to go back to where we began uh, with the outbreak in china the chinese said and the who unquestioningly agreed that it was restrictive measures that drove down the covid-19 epidemic in china <clears throat> but the facts as narrated by the chinese themselves cast doubt on this understanding of what exactly went on the chinese are on record in the who china joint mission report which is linked on my blog saying that their cases quote peaked and plateaued peaked and plateaued between 23rd january and 27th january and have been steadily declining since then apart from a spike that was reported on february the 1st so <clears throat> the chinese are reporting that their cases peaked and plateaued between the 23rd and 27th of january and have been steadily declining since then in this report the chinese were able to tabulate the daily number of cases both by the date of onset of illness and the date of lab tests uh graphs for these figures uh, from this joint mission report are linked on my blog now as would be expected there is a time lag between the date of symptom onset and the date of lab test results the figures for china show that while lab reports began to come in around january 20th and peaked between february the 4th and 10th the peak of onset of symptoms that is the highest number of people falling ill per day was on january the 23rd after which it plateaued of as they said uh, for about 5 days and then went into a steady downward trend uh, save for a spike on february the 1st which appears to be the result of a reporting anomaly that was discovered sometime around february the 12th now the reason why this puts into question the idea that containment measures brought down cases in china is that lockdown was implemented in wuhan and hubei province only on january the 23rd and measures were triggered in other provinces of china only later in january it really kicked in if you read the report uh, on the 29th of january okay <clears throat> and um there are reports of fairs public feasts and a local communist party cadre meeting attended by tens of thousands of wuhanis in the days of january just before lockdown as this period coincided with the festival with the festive time of the chinese new year and the spring week celebrations now with an incubation period of 14 days it is highly unlikely that lockdown would affect the growth of covid-19 cases the very day the very day uh, that it was implemented especially considering all the activity i have just described that occurred in wuhan in the weeks immediately preceding the weeks and days immediately preceding the lockdown there's another factor here uh, there was very high traffic all over china in the weeks before lockdown owing to the approaching chinese new year this is popularly called the period of chunyun where millions of chinese travel back home to their native towns and cities in the lead up to the chinese new year which fell this year on january the 25th followed by the annual spring festival holiday week this was also a period when university students were going home for the holidays every year in the chunyun period over 3 billion trips are estimated to be made 
and chunyun literally translates in chinese as spring travel um <clears throat> with uh, their migrant labor uh, laying out in corridors in trains in the rush uh, head to foot in the rush to get home who knew then the scenes that were going to be played out in india 2 months later with its own migrant labor walking to their native villages on foot for thousands of kilometers fleeing the hunger and penury of the cities caused by chinese inspired lockdown <clears throat> the traffic rush of chunyun took place in the early weeks of january and press reports from the time uh, which i've linked on my blog show photographs of massive crowds in chinese trains and transport stations at the time wuhan is a transport hub for hubei uh, which employs many industrial workers the chinese authorities in the who china joint mission report estimated that 50 lakh people 5 million people traveled out of wuhan to other provinces of china in this period so travel was high in the run up to the lockdown albeit with many wearing face masks and screening at bus and train stations for fever fever screening was used in china for sars but unlike that disease we now know that people with covid-19 can be infectious even if they are asymptomatic or before they develop fever clinical research papers by chinese doctors that trace the history of cases in january show that people traveled thousands of kilometers across provinces to reunite with their families and that people were meeting socially right until the time of the lockdown A German study of the transmission of COVID-19 by asymptomatic persons in late January shows business travel out of China days before the lockdown. Given these facts, it is an open question which must receive more scientific attention as to why COVID-19 cases in China plateaued from January the 23rd onwards and trended downwards from the end of that month. <clears throat> a similar pattern can be seen in Italy which has also been publishing data on the date of onset of covid cases uh, and uh, the um, it's been linked on my site as well as the website where it's updated regularly now like china uh, there is a lag between the date of case onset and the date of diagnosis even who officials accept that we have to work backwards from the date of cases as reported to get a correct picture of how the disease is spreading mike ryan said at a who press briefing in late march that and i quote the cases we see today really reflect exposures 2 weeks ago the cases you see today are almost historical in the same way as we told uh, <laughs> these guys are just a bunch of jokers as we told when we're looking at galaxies through a telescope that we are seeing light from billions of years ago uh, we are seeing a reality that existed before when you count your cases on a daily basis uh, in an epidemic it reflects a reality of transmission and risk 2 weeks ago so this is not controversial uh, at least uh, you know the lockdown fans the who um, <clears throat> also accept this now <clears throat> in italy The lockdown was imposed in its northern provinces on March the 8th and extended to the rest of Italy on March the 10th. According to the date of onset data, the daily case onset uh, peaked on March the 10th uh, and remained high at between 4 to 6000 cases for the next 10 days 
Though trending downwards from March the 14th, apart from a spike on March the 20th, after which cases trend more consistently downwards. So again, these downward trends are too near to the lockdown for any easy assumption to be made about their having been impacted by it. It may be, looking at these facts, that uh, at least the intervention in China and Italy uh, was already at a point where uh, the cases had peaked. It may be. Uh, these are the things that we uh, should be asking about and investigating. Uh, but it's not happening. Even the question hasn't been raised, although the data is out there in those, you know, fantastically colored graphs that uh, we've all been looking at for, the, for so many months. And this is what I meant when I said right at the start of this lecture series about the pandemic being something of a fantasy uh, on the part of epidemiologists. It is not that there is no COVID-19. But we are only seeing it in the way the epidemiologists are making it up. And what we need to do uh, is to start looking at it for what it is. We, we need to sit back and observe. Only then will we uh, get to a proper understanding. The date, of, uh, the date of onset data from China shows that in January, I mean, this is, uh, I'm just going to explain to you here how wrong, how off, uh, the uh, estimates of both the uh, epidemiologists, the COVID experts group uh, who did the Imperial College report and of uh, Tedros Adhanom and his officials at the WHO were in January. Okay, The date of, uh, the date of onset data from January shows uh, uh, for China shows that when the COVID experts group was estimating case numbers in China at 4,000, the COVID experts group being the people who wrote the, the, the Imperial College report led by Neil Ferguson. They were estimating case numbers in China at 4,000, but these estimates did not come anywhere near the cases uh, that had actually onset uh, by then. If you uh, go to the WHO China Joint Mission Report and you extract from the data that is presented there in the graphs, uh, they show that at this time, the cases were at over 12,000 by January the 23rd, when, when the COVID experts group was saying 17,000, 4,000, okay, it was 12,000. And then, and they went up to nearly 40,000 by the end of January. So the COVID experts group estimation of cases was wildly off the mark. And they also did not know at the time uh, that when they were making their, their estimates and talking about the uh, epidemic as if it were just beginning to start, that the cases had actually started peaking at that time in China. And uh, when on January the 23rd, Tedros Adhanom was saying that it was too early to call a public health emergency of international concern. Because he said, and you can go back to the press briefings of January the 23rd, it's all there in black and white on the WHO website. He said that, uh, you know, it's not yet a PHIEIC because there were only 575 cases in China. But the thing is that this number was based only on the lab results which had come in by then. And, uh, you know, then a week later, when he was finally, the WHO was reluctantly forced to declare COVID-19 to be a public health emergency of international concern, uh, Tedros Adhanom says that, you know, he continues to believe that all of this will be controlled by the interventions the Chinese are taking. Uh, and he says in the, in the press briefing of January the 30th, that there were 7,736 uh, cases in China by that time. 
but <clears throat> the case onset data which i've been talking about which came out in the who china joint mission report shows over 40000 cases uh, by then so the scale of the outbreak was much bigger than the world health organization or even perhaps the chinese had realized in january and given what mike ryan is himself saying about how uh, the cases that you see today uh, reflect case onset of 2 weeks ago uh, he knows the time lag uh, for uh, test results to come in it's uh, very strange that they proceeded on the basis merely of this uh, reported lab data as was coming out uh, at the time in january if the who had realized the full extent of the outbreak in china they might not have been so confident of its controllability and the conversation over what measures were feasible and optimal might have taken a different route uh, there are and you know these are all questions that we should be asking that journalists should be asking the world health organization uh we should ask the world health organization to explain why it did not bring attention to the differences in the case numbers that they were quoting in january and what they themselves said uh, or at least cleared off in the february uh, who china joint mission report this must be explained you're talking about 500 cases and 7000 cases when there were um, what was it 23 12000 cases and nearly 40000 cases and your own document is 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 pointing out this difference you must explain and it's a real shame that that not a single journalist anywhere in the world has even thought about us asking these questions okay <clears throat> there are other anomalies in the covid-19 data that are crying out for inquiry although early outbreaks in many places were attributed to large public events called super spreader events there is no consistency between the occurrence of public gatherings or crowded mass movement of people and the appearance of a covid-19 cluster For instance we already noted how 5 million people 50 lakh people uh, traveled out of Wuhan to places all over China in the days and weeks leading up to the lockdown there on January the 23rd contact tracing began outside of Hubei only in late January but you didn't see anything like the outbreak in the rest of China as you saw in Hubei uh, which saw about 3/4 of the cases overall for China This cannot be explained simply by the closure of the Hubei border or the measures introduced outside Hubei by the Chinese government as the time lag between people arriving from Wuhan to other places in China and the start of contact tracing and hospital isolation more than accounts for the 14 day incubation period of COVID-19. Not only were there disproportionately fewer cases outside of Wuhan a published study of all cases until february the 11th in china showed that the lethality of the uh, disease had also changed as you moved away from wuhan the case fatality of patients in hubei uh, where wuhan is was said to be seven times as high as that of patients in other provinces even though they were carrying the same disease uh, with them uh, out of wuhan um <clears throat> then you know if you consider the huge mingling of people from different provinces during the chunyun travel which i just described uh, this itself uh, should have made certain travel routes into hot spots or hot routes for the disease 
but there are no such reports from China, even though millions travelled in close contact. And because China is so big, uh, they would they were on the train head to foot for twelve hours and more on long journeys um, uh, in overcrowded uh, train wagons just before the lockdown. Uh, so and not only are there no reports of uh, covid outbreaks associated with um, uh, any you know of these train routes in china there are no reports from any country or city uh, anywhere in the world of overcrowded bus train or metro routes being especially associated with any covid-19 outbreak um with mass gatherings there are other puzzles even though some outbreaks were traced to large gatherings not all gatherings in the same period sparked outbreaks. For example, although malls have huge footfalls, not a single outbreak in any country has been linked to uh, a mall. And uh, this indicates, <coughs> all these facts indicate that the sharing of public spaces as such is not in of itself resulting in significant transmission and a more intense intimate and prolonged interaction seems to be required for transmission to occur. Now, if this is true, then the whole idea of stopping public movement to contain COVID transmission is questionable. Another question that uh, journalists and scientists should be asking. <clears throat> there were mass gatherings all around the world in March and April that did not lead to mass outbreaks. For example, there were two gatherings in Bangladesh, one in Lakshmipur district <coughs> of a prayer meeting with an estimated 10 to 25,000. This was held in mid-March and a second in the middle of April where one lakh people defied lockdown to attend the funeral of a popular political figure in Brahman Barya district in Bangladesh. Okay. So you've got these two huge gatherings in uh, the middle of March and the middle of April. However, even by early June, uh, there were less than 200 cases in both these places. I have uh, put links to this uh, data on my website and uh, there's also a link to the uh, website of the Bangladesh government where they periodically update their district-wise cases. A month later, in early July, uh, Brahman Barya had reported 733 cases and Lakshmipur district had reported 929 cases. Uh, this shows that the rise in cases in these areas, which follows a general rise of cases in South Asia in this period, was driven by other factors than the gatherings in April and March. In France, a large church gathering in Mulhouse in Autrain, uh, is thought by some to have resulted in 2,000 infections out of the 2,500 people who attended this gathering. A nurse who went to the gathering from nearby Strasbourg is said to have then spread the virus to 250 colleagues in the hospital where she worked. But a pastor from Burkina Faso who also attended the gathering and is said to have been the first case along with his wife of COVID-19 in Burkina Faso spread the disease to only five other people and this is despite the fact that a pastor's work involves contact with many people and it was a good fortnight before uh, he was diagnosed and placed in quarantine. A pastor from Guyana who also attended the Mulhouse church gathering was among those who unknowingly contracted this disease 
uh, and uh, but it is reported that he and his four travel companions did not pass it on to the over 80 people who were contact traced uh, you know after the infection was discovered only one child uh, uh, contracted the infection and she had a mild illness um <clears throat> uh, Another example is one of the most popular events of Louisiana's Mardi Gras festival, the Zulu Ball, which was held on February 21st with 20,000 people. Uh, the Mardi Gras uh, has, uh, uh, you know, uh, very unfortunately been linked to uh, initial outbreaks in Louisiana. Um, uh, but uh, this is a festival that's not only attended by, uh, by Americans or by people uh, in the state of Louisiana. One million people are said to have attended the Mardi Gras from around the world. Uh, but while uh, Louisiana itself was an early COVID-19 hotspot in the US, no hotspots in other countries have been identified, at least so far, linked to visitors at the festival. Um, even when large outbreaks did result, uh, sorry, when large gatherings did result in outbreaks, chains of transmission did not radiate as widely as you would expect for a virus that does not burn out, but simply, as the epidemiologist presumed, endlessly propagates from person to person to person in the same line of contact until you intervene to break the chain. Um, an example of this is the Tablighi Jamaat outbreak in New Delhi, which remained confined to the people in the Markas and did not spread into the surrounding Basti. So, uh, these are some, uh, uh, you know, open questions uh, that uh, it really is uh, time for us to start looking at. Um, the only way that, uh, that we can uh, get a grip on this disease is by really understanding it. And uh, we are not... Uh, paying enough attention to understanding it in, in the totality of its behavior and, uh, you know, the peculiarities and eccentricities that emerge. And some of these um, uh, on uh, further investigation may uh, prove not to be as paradoxical as they first appear. But, you know, we have got to scrunch up all those exponential graphs and put them aside. And we just have to now see uh, how this uh, virus seems to have uh, traveled because uh, there are, you know, too many examples of different types of uh, big minglings of people in so many places of the world. And there is no consistency in the way in which uh, outbreaks have occurred. And uh, in these anomalies, uh, some answers may be hidden. So uh, this concludes part nine of the lecture series. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Uh, today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog, covidlectures.blogspot.com, where the full paper and parts 1 to 8 of my earlier lectures have already been published, along with links to the YouTube videos and podcasts for this series. And um, I invite you all tomorrow, uh, because tomorrow is special, it will be the concluding lecture, the last and final lecture of this series. Um, it has been very kind of you uh, to have given me a hearing and uh, to have patiently stood by for all these many, many days. I, I deeply appreciate it. And um, uh, so I hope, hope to see you tomorrow uh, at 7 p.m. India time, 2.30 p.m. London time and 9.30 a.m. New York time on Facebook Live for uh, another and the last and final round of the COVID lecture series, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Thank you.